Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 39, recorded on September 10th, 2019. The Cloud Pod goes quantum. Hey guys, how's it going this evening? <laughs> That's a great start. <laughs> I refuse to be the one to go. Wow. It's going well. How are you? Uh, good, good. Uh, apparently better than you two. <laughs> are you guys sure you don't need a new drink? <laughs> <laughs> the LaCroix is going to have to do for me tonight. All right, all right. Well, we uh, we have some interesting news to get to, so let's uh, let's get right to it. Uh, Slack, uh, unfortunately for uh, Jonathan, posted its first earnings uh, since they went public, and since uh, he predicted they would get bought before they went public, we're still rooting for him to have them get bought by the end of the year. Uh, they apparently uh, lowered their guidance for the rest of the year, and so that results in the stock plunging 13% in after hours and uh, closed down 4% the next day in normal trading, uh, while the rest of the market was up 1.5 points. Uh, second quarter losses before costs such as stock comp of $0.14 cents per share on a revenues of $145 million. Uh, Wall Street, as we've said many times, are terrible at their jobs, had expected only $0.18 cents per share of loss and $140.7 million in revenues. Uh, and the third quarter loss is now expected to be between 8 to $0.09 cents per share on 154 to $156 million in revenue. Uh, analysts wanted that to only be $0.07, cents, though, on uh, $115.3 million in revenue, which, again, I, I really don't understand how these people do that. Uh, or, sorry, $153 million in revenue. Uh, I don't really don't understand how they do their job because they have no idea what the bookings are, the forecast, or any of the data that you'd actually need to make a forecast. But, you know, that's especially for a brand new company just going into the market, it seems kind of hard and a little bit harsh. But, you know, there you are, Slack, potentially still on the, on the acquisition block there, Jonathan. I guess so. I should have snapped him up at a bargain, but I didn't, so. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of speculation. But in general, they uh, it's always better to, to uh, revise guidance up, I think, is the rule, right? Yeah, you want to you want to do better, but I mean the the problem is is that they're talking about stock losses. So even though it looks like they projected it up, it actually means that they have a more of a loss than they expected to have. So that's uh, you know what it is. But you know they're trading on twenty six point seven five at the end of the day today. So you still get some good uh, good shares in Jonathan for a few hundred dollars. So <laughs> you, you have a chance to buy it, buy in before they get bought out. Well, moving on to uh, new news, uh, AWS has uh, been busy this week. They introduced fine-grained IAM roles for service accounts uh, for EKS. And so this was apparently number 23 on the public container roadmap. Uh, and this is a way that AWS has made uh, Kubernetes pods first-class citizens in IAM. Uh, rather than intercepting the request to the EC2 metadata API to perform a call to the STS API to retrieve temporary credentials, uh, they made the change to the way AWS identity APIs recognize Kubernetes pod directly. Uh, they're leveraging an OpenID Connect IDP capability and a Kubernetes service account annotation to allow you to directly invoke these roles. And this introduces a new SDK provider called uh, STS Assume Role with Web Identity, uh, which is really nice. And so uh, if you look at this blog post uh, that we link to here in the show notes, Oh, you will see that this is uh, quite complicated to get set up the first time, and so this is open source code, and so if you'd like to make that simpler uh, and give them a pull request, I'm sure they'd all really appreciate it, because uh, it's a, it said three simple steps, and as you read through the three simple steps, it was like, this is more like 12 simple steps <laughs> that are very complicated and very confusing. Uh, so definitely nice to see it, but uh, a little rough around the edges right now. So what's, what value does this have exactly? 
So instead of, you know, basically it's really that EC2 metadata API uh, ability for the, the pod itself to directly call to um, IAM to get its credentials without going through the metadata service. So it's much more secure. It you know, avoids that SSRF um, vulnerability potential risk uh, from a Kubernetes pod perspective. So it, overall, it's a, it's a nice enhancement. It's a good integration. Um, and, you know, it's coupled into the way they do EKS on AWS uh, and how they leverage roles. It's similar to, you know, if you think about ECS and task roles, um, this is basically making the equivalent of a task role available to a pod. Fair enough. Yeah, I imagine it's going to make it a lot uh, simpler to get by all of the uh, certifications that require uh, that you are implementing least permission. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, you're stunned with excitement about containers, I can tell. I'm just still scrolling down the immense blog post. This has got to be one of the longest blog posts I've ever seen for a new feature. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like Amazon uh, went on a hiring spree because they have been writing a lot of blog posts uh, as of late, and they're all new people I've never heard of before. Uh, it's no longer just Jeff Barr doing it. And so I think we complained about that in a prior episode that, you know, Jeff Barr was not scaling. So they uh, they apparently heard us here at the CloudPod and have hired several additional writers, uh, and they are writing a lot more blog posts than they ever used to, which is super nice because they actually have a lot more technical detail and, and a little bit more beyond than the new, uh, the new release feed that we also report off of. Yeah, I think Jeff's thing's a great when you can demo it in a console. Lots of nice screenshots and things, but something like this is definitely not something you're going to click through. No, definitely not something you're going to click through. And there's some really nice architecture diagrams to kind of walk you through it. Um, but I do, I do hope that someone uh, makes this a little simpler because uh, this is complicated. <laughs> For the, but I mean, everything in Kubernetes is complicated, so I guess it just goes with the story. That's how they start. They'll work their way up the chain. Next thing you know, it'll be two clicks in the console. And it'll be like six more news articles that we can talk about in the podcast as they make it simpler. Yep. So, perfect. Well, uh, if you're using Amazon EFS and Frequent Access, uh, you are now the proud beneficiary of apparently one of the largest uh, to date in history cost reductions of the Amazon cloud. Uh, so you're welcome <laughs> from Amazon. This cost reduction represents a 92% uh, decrease on file storage costs, bringing the, co the total cost down to roughly $0.08 cents per gigabyte per month. Um, EFS IA is, of course, a perfect solution for files that are in excess regularly. Uh, and if you had a 20-80% uh, mix of storage for 100 terabyte uh, volume, so 20% on you know, normal access and 80% on infrequently accessed, uh, this would roughly cost you about $8,000 a month uh, versus it used to cost you around $30,000 a month for that same amount of storage uh, all on high access. So this is a super nice improvement if you're using EFS uh, in a more traditional file store uh, basis where you're not accessing everything every day. And this is a pretty nice reduction. Uh, a little bit myth that this is the largest history uh, of cost reductions ever, but uh, I'm hoping someday the network team will get the largest cost reduction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, but at the same time, this is the the big part of this is IA different service tier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, they had to get more creative in how they they tell you they saved you money. You know, you can't just right. be, we gave you a straight you know ten percent discount. No, no, we gave you a new tier that's even lesser uh, in cost, and then that's how we gave it to you. And it seems weird. Who who would use infrequent access for for EFS? I mean, why not just dump it into S three and uh, it costs a quarter of the price of EFS infrequent access just to, just for the regular S3 pricing. So, no, I mean, legacy products that can't support S3 for one. Exactly. This is one of the biggest pain points for uh, people we see migrating to the cloud is they're stuck with file system requirements and they're like, how do, how do we put this stuff in S3? Do you have a gateway? Can we load drivers and mount it like a file system? And it's like, oh. it's not a file system. It's not uh, a file yeah. system. 
Yeah, don't ever mention S3FS around yeah, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> don't mention around anywhere from Amazon either. Yeah, still pretty expensive though. I don't know. If it was if it was if it was SIFS or something, I could see why you know infrequent access for SIFS, you know, moving Windows applications to the cloud. But EFS is NFS four, isn't it? So it just seems unlikely that that you'd be able to support NFS four, but you wouldn't be able to. Alter well, I mean, they, they are calling the blended cost the the eight cents per gigabyte per month. The actual cost of the infrequent storage is a. Uh, 0 0.25, uh, or sorry, 0 0.025 gigabytes per month. Um, so the actual infrequent access is actually not that expensive. It's the yeah, blended cost, which cents. comes out to be eight cents. Ah, so two right. and a half cents is pretty, pretty much S3 pricing, right? Yeah. I wonder yeah, if they, you know, they built the SFTP front end for, for S3, so maybe they just built a uh, an NFS front end for S3 as well for this infre infrequent access tier. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curious what the real world um, latency is to this stuff because. If it, you know, most applications that you'd be te technically be able to use infrequent, you know, a couple second delay is probably not the end of the world. But um, it really depends on how much latency it actually requires or invokes at that infrequent tier. I'm sure we'll hear about the uh, all the enormous cost savings at reInvent this year. Oh, I'm sure they'll show that slide with, you know, we've made a million cost reductions to things that you don't use. Uh, that slide is always my favorite. Uh, after, of course, after they show you the uh, the Death Star of services that they now own and manage. <laughs> Well, uh, Amazon ECS has busy uh, getting busy with Spinnaker, and so they've uh, apparently for the last year have been contributing uh, big ways uh, open source code to the Spinnaker project. Of course, Spinnaker was open sourced by Netflix in 2015, uh, and is a compelling CI/CD solution for customers looking to standardize their deployment process across multiple platforms and integrate with existing tools like Jenkins. Uh, you know, originally the initial ECS code was written by Lookout.com. Uh, and contributed to the open source community, and Amazon has come in and taken over that work uh, in a big way and still contributes uh, the majority of the code. Uh, that was because customers wanted things like Fargate support, more flexibility in running their services without a load balancer, for example, um, and supporting uh, placement constraints. Though Amazon has now built all of those things, they've provided 50-plus pull requests uh, to the five Spinnaker repos supporting Amazon, and they've also added support for task definition artifacts. Of course, they're still continuing to build this out, and they're continuing to talk about what they're doing in the future, uh, and they're looking with large customers uh, to resolve scaling issues around race conditions and cache inefficiencies that Spinnaker uh, brings to the table. So they're definitely uh, doing a lot of work. They also are announcing that they are partnering with uh, Netflix and Armory to form the Spinnaker AWS Special Interest Group, uh, and the SIG is going to meet monthly on Google Hangouts, and anyone is welcome to go join them uh, and listen to whatever they talk about with Spinnaker. They're not going to have it on Chime? Uh, no, no, they did not say Chime. <laughs> I thought Google were killing Hangouts, or is that that's only the, uh, or they're keeping it around for the for the business tier? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I, I don't know who's using Google Hangouts in that, of those three companies, but it's not Amazon. So... Yeah. <laughs> I think it's cool that Amazon is still supporting these third-party uh, tools instead of just committing 100% of their energy toward their own CI/CD tools. That's uh, a good balance. You know, you get those tightly integrated tools um, that work really well with their system, uh, but then uh, these uh, these other third-party tools that are that are cloud independent are. It's also cool to see them contributing to those, even though you could argue that they potentially commoditize some of the services. So good on Amazon for not worrying about that and just developing what customers want. And they, we've seen them contribute to Terraform as well and to some of the other uh, programming languages out there. So yeah, they're definitely supporting the open source community in a big way around ECS and uh, CI CD tools in particular. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. 
I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Amazon EKS is now supporting uh, Kubernetes 1.14, continuing their maintenance of only being one major revision behind uh, prime <laughs> Kubernetes. Uh, this brings you a couple of key features, including durable local storage management and pod priorities, as well as the beta launch of PID limiting, uh, or PID limiting. I don't know how you say that exactly, but it's weird to say out loud because I only ever read it. <laughs> but uh, Windows support uh, has also graduated to stable state with uh, Kubernetes 1.14, and uh, EKS support is imminent uh, for launching, according to the blog post. Uh, if you are using Amazon uh, EKS 1.111, your clusters are now out of date and not supported, and so please upgrade as fast as possible. Love how we, uh, I love this durable storage, just so that we don't have to make our apps stateless and we can just be lazy. It's wonderful. Until you, your container runs on the wrong node that doesn't have your durable local storage. It's all fine <laughs> until that happens. It's durable, it's just not available. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Pod priorities is pretty cool too. I mean, I, I've been waiting for containers to really help pe- help us get to the point where we could start really um, maximizing the use of the resources we're paying for. You see the anytime you see those tools uh, uh, that analyze your spend, they'll dig into CPU while they're at it, and you'll see that it looks a lot like your old data center sometimes with a bunch of instances that are averaging twenty percent utilization. So. I'm hoping that features like pod priorities will help sort of oversubscribe with and still be able to offer uh, SLAs on priority workloads. It sounds like the, the whole uh, VMware kind of evolution from 20 years ago. Yeah, totally. So Windows support, though, is, is interesting. I wonder how many people are really waiting for Windows support in Kubernetes. There are dozens of them out there, Jonathan. Dozens. Dozens. Okay. <laughs> Plurals. <laughs> there's at least one. There's at least one. There's some. There's some customer who's really mad they don't have it yet. I'm sure who's re- ugly reaching out to AWS to complain about it. <laughs> well, uh, Amazon Config Rules has finally gotten the ability to automatically remediate non-compliant resources. Uh, of course, Amazon Config has been a great tool to help you identify issues with things like uh, public S3 buckets uh, and you know different configuration errors around IAM permissions, etc. Uh, but you couldn't automatically remediate that without some heroics and some uh, lambda spackle in between. Uh, but now you can all do that natively right from the Config compliance uh, console, and you can do that without manual intervention, thereby reducing time to remediate resources. So that's a that's a great feature, uh, something I've been asking for for a long time, and glad to finally see has made it to the product uh, as a first-class citizen, not a not a Lambda Spackle solution. I could see two or three uh, companies that offer this service that are probably pretty bummed right now. Cloud Custodian is open source, so it can't be them. Not them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the great thing about that's the great thing about Cloud Custodian is they'll just they'll just like be excited because there'll be less it, for yeah. them to do. 
They had yeah, less exactly. work they'll for just, them to do. They'll suck this into their code and be like, yeah, we support Amazon Config natively to do this remediation for you. So, yeah. Exactly. That's, that's actually pretty great for the open source side. I find it a little strange that, that Config is a separate, um, a separate entity from CloudFormation. I mean, it, I mean, I guess not everyone deploys using CloudFormation, but if if you if you deploy your infrastructure using some kind of tool like Terraform or CloudFormation, you would you would think that drift correction would be built into into the the deployment side of things rather than having a separate tool where you have to independently declare your rules and things. Because again, this, we're going to start remediating things which which your uh, your Terraform state or the CloudFormation state doesn't necessarily match with anymore. It's a little, little bit of a muddy area, I think. It is interesting. Because obviously, in a perfect world, one would say, just don't give them the rights to do it in the first place. But we've all learned it's so hard to put together those IAM rights. And it just seems like the mode, it's easier to give everybody ac you know access to do some things that maybe they shouldn't and auto-remediate those rather than not allowing the right in the first place. I was always interested in that. <laughs> the uh, the article has a link to a blog post that doesn't actually exist. That's fantastic. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I was like, well, I wonder if they mentioned that in the blog post, and I was trying to go find it, and then uh, there's there's no blog post. So there you go. All right. <laughs> well, then moving on. Uh, <laughs> the Quantum Ledger database is now generally available from AWS. This, of course, was announced at reInvent, uh, and now is now GA. So I think that's actually the last reInvent announcement that we were really waiting for GA, isn't it? Or am I missing one? Was it waiting for cross-region uh, transit gateway? Uh, was they, that announced they, on stage though, or is that well, just... they they teased it? They did, but but, um, but no, they didn't officially announce it. We should track this next year. Let's take a note of that. We should track uh, when they announce something that's not quite available yet. When how long it takes to go GA, and then we can yeah. know for sure. But uh, we did we didn't do that because we were new to this whole podcasting thing then. So, but uh, there are several key concepts to uh, QLDB. Uh, it consists of a ledger. Uh, journal, uh, tables, documents, party QL, uh, which I talked about here on the show, and then of course it leverages serverless in the back end. Uh, a ledger, of course, uh, consists of several QLDB tables and the journal that maintains the complete immutable history of the changes to the tables. Um, ledgers are, of course, named and can be tagged. The uh, tables exist, like I said, in the ledger and contain a collection of document revisions, and the documents themselves exist within the tables and must be in Amazon Ion form. Uh, Ion apparently is a superset of JSON that adds additional data types, uh, type annotations, and comments. Uh, pricing for this is a little bit complicated. Uh, it is based on uh, writes, reads, journal storage, and index storage, as well as data transfer. Uh, but the pricing isn't too crazy, so for write.io, it's uh, 70 cents per 1 million requests. Uh, for read, it is uh, about 13 cents per million requests, and then journal storage is about 0 0.03 uh, per gigabit per month, so pretty close to S3 pricing. And then the index storage is a little bit more expensive at uh, 2 25 cents uh, per gig. Uh, so overall, this is uh, really interesting if you're doing something with Quantum Ledger. Uh, you know, we talked about the the guys uh, in the, you know Asia who uh, Warner went and visited. They're using uh, Ledger databases in a big way, and so this is a uh, pretty interesting, pretty exciting. Maybe we can actually see real solutions on top of uh, Ledger databases sometimes in the future. Maybe we'll have a couple of good, good case studies at uh, reInvent. Yeah, at least they haven't launched their own currency. <laughs> they have not launched an Amazon buck yet, so we'll see. Oh my goodness, you know it's coming. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's right after they get into healthcare, right after they get into mortgage industry, and right after they get into uh, whatever other industry you're afraid they're going to kill tomorrow. So, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. They were, they were talking about uh, going into the, the uh, pharmaceuticals distribution stuff. Oh, that's right. They were talking about that too, like the, the pharmacy business. So. Yeah. No, all kinds of things that they uh, they say they're going to do that I've never, you know, never ever really come to fruition. I, I assume there's a, a pile of narratives of 
really great idea, someone was super passionate about that they wrote up, but then, you know, they read it and said, nope, this isn't a billion-dollar idea, and they just shelved it. But it gets leaked to the press, that's something they're actually going to do. Yeah, did they actually mention the word blockchain in uh, in, the, in the press release for QLDB? Uh, they did. I think I think people are people are scared away from uh, blockchain anymore. But basically, it's a blockchain-based database. They they don't. Well, you saw blockchain in the. I don't see blockchain in there. No, no, it's not in there, is it? But, but yeah, no, it's I not. Mean, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they've kind of separated themselves from the, from the actual. Well, I mean, tech, tech I mean, that drives the, it. We talked about last week. Pat Gelsinger from VMware uh, thinks that you know the the blockchain is only used for legal illicit things. So why not separate yourself from that? <laughs> if that's the that's the pain people are actually coming out of uh, with these products. Well, I think that was more the Bitcoin, right? Well, yeah, it was, I guess it was more specifically Bitcoin, but uh, yeah, blockchain is kind of same quote. You know, basically everyone thinks it's the same thing as Bitcoin. No one, no one can tell the that, difference. Who's not telling? That is true. No one can so, tell the difference. So now they just call it a ledger database, and no one will know what that means at all. So <laughs> I, I imagine there's a a room full of people in Amazon with you know those giant ledger books from the 1800s is how they you know, <laughs> manage transactions in a, in a ledger book. That'd be that's yeah. all I, that's all I I'm now going to envision the service like that every week. Writing it with a quill. Yeah, like just with a quill <laughs> and by the firelight and you know Mr. Scrooge is in the back room saying he can't have more coal for the fire. Yeah, okay, anyways, moving on. <laughs> uh, Google has a bunch of announcements this week, of course. Uh, the first one, they have announced the general availability of 6 and 12 terabyte VMs for SAP HANA instances on Google Cloud Platform. Uh, many of the world's largest enterprises run their business, of course, on SAP. And as these companies drive towards digital transformation and plan for the upgrade to S4 HANA, they are increasingly looking to the cloud to support their mission-critical workloads. Uh, with these larger systems, they can now provide 6 to 12 terabytes of memory in a single node, and uh, they are built on top of the latest Intel Cascade Lake architecture and certified by SAP for HANA and generally available as of the recording today. You know, what blows my mind about these instances is that they still support live migration from uh, you know, old old to new hypervisors, even with six or 12 terabytes of RAM. That's just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I remember when we couldn't even get them, you know, with normal vMotion, you couldn't even get the memory above a certain size to sync in enough time to actually do a live vMotion properly. So just amazing how fast the networks have gotten to be able to do that kind of synchronization. But, uh, you know, it is a little interesting to me that, you know, for as a company to drive your digital transformation, you must have HANA, and HANA requires uh, massive amounts of memory. Uh, which is a little bit interesting. And so, you know, you could break your bank and your digital transformation just on the, the reporting engine alone, uh, along with your Splunk instances that will also use this hardware yeah. quite nicely. <laughs> Maybe SAP HANA and Splunk should just merge together and then they could just, you know, take advantage of the same hardware. I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure we could afford them both. Oh, no one could afford them both. Like, that's, that's clearly the case. They'll just put each other out of business. There you go. Google has uh, bringing shielded VMs to uh, GKE with the new shielded GKE nodes. Uh, where workloads go, of course, attackers will follow. And as more orgs adopt containers and deploy sensitive workloads with Kubernetes, uh, they are container-specific surface areas that need to be hardened. Uh, GCP has announced the shielded GKE node in beta, which will provide strong, verifiable node identity and integration to increase protection of your Kubernetes cluster. Uh, there is some examples and evidence that this is not just a theory, and it's actually been tested by a security researcher and exploited, uh, that the Kubernetes node is a pretty viable attack vector. And so the shielded GKE node provides the following capabilities. A node OS provenance check, which is a crypto verifiable check to make sure that the node OS is running a virtual machine in Google Data Center. Uh, enhanced rootkit and bootkit protection uh, to avoid uh, anything being run before the operating system loads on the hosts. Uh, which is particularly important as you're getting into physical uh, bare metal systems. 
Uh, and this is a secure and measured boot virtual trusted platform module and a UFI firmware and integrity monitor. There's also a standards base uh, built on, on top of the Trusted Computing Group Trusted Platform Module, and the Shield GK nodes use a standardized specification for trusted computing, such as verifying the boot integrity of the node and enhancing the node bootstrapping process. Uh, and there's a quote here from Shopify's security infrastructure engineer, Shane Lawrence. Shopify's thousands of nodes must each run a proxy to prevent metadata servers from divulging Kubelet bootstrap credentials, which are required for a node to join a cluster but shouldn't be needed after that. We're excited to migrate to Shielded GKE nodes, which can be only use those credentials in conjunction with a secure VTPM-based method to establish trust with the cluster. The change allows us to turn off the proxies to save resources, and limiting the capabilities of the bootstrap credentials eliminates an attack vector, so our platform is even more secure. That's great because it actually makes sense. I'm so tired of hearing uh, testimonials that are completely senseless. Are you saying that my testimonial choices are typically senseless? <laughs> that yeah, it's super cool. I mean, it's like, wow, there's a real thing they could turn off that was just wasting resources and a potential uh, attack vector that they always had to worry about now um, instantly gone. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a pretty nice feature. And you know, definitely a big attack vector is your, your Kubernetes host or your, your ECS node as well. And you know, I know we leveraged um, CoreOS for a long time because of that exact reason and had to move away with it as Red Hat kind of killed it. But um, you know, having those much more reduced hardened uh, OSs to run your container infrastructure is a great thing. And having these hardened GKE nodes that they're going to support and secure um, is really a quite a nice advantage. The provenance check is really useful. I, I hope everybody starts doing the, doing the same kind of thing because it's, it's so difficult to prove who you are um, when you're doing service-to-service -service authentication. I mean, at some point, you have to have some credentials somewhere. And, and if they can build uh, some kind of identity into the platform, which, which you can verify then uh, that's that's really cool. I wonder though, like as you get into Anthos and you get into um, potentially Google hardware that you might deploy to your data center, you know, is that Providence actually become a situation where it becomes an attack vector because you have to register, you know, custom Providence domains in your data center uh, for the service to work on, you know, the Google hardware or or in your Anthos infrastructure? It, it you know, it seems like a really great idea on the surface, but I wonder how it how it scales in this very hybrid world we're moving towards. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea either. <laughs> it is a good question. <laughs> yeah. When uh, when they lower the price of Anthos by ninety two percent, maybe we'll find out. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I've forgotten how expensive that was. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very expensive. Yes. <laughs> I assume we'll hopefully see that at Google Next this year. Uh, all right. Well, on to Microsoft and our friends at Azure. Uh, they apparently have acquired a new infrastructure visibility provider called Movir. This comes a few weeks after they uh, purchased J Clarity, which we talked about here on the show. Uh, MS announced the acquisition of Movir. Uh, based out of Bellevue, Washington, uh, the product enables enterprises to take stock of their technology assets without sinking person hours into laborious manual reviews. Uh, Movir can move, map out a corporate network at a rate of more than 1,000 servers per hour and generate a visual asset breakdown for admins. Uh, so this is a really nice uh, solution here if you're looking for some capabilities. And now it's part of the Azure platform to help you uh, move your assets to the cloud. I, I was really hoping this was going to be a lightning round thing so I could like, get my uh, my ding, ding, ding in for uh, complaining that, that lift and shift is, is not innovative in the slightest and using a tool like this to inventory your stuff and then move it as is into, into Azure is just such a waste. I mean, it's such, such a lost opportunity to do some good transformations. Everyone wants to get to the cloud quickly. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have given you any points for that anyway, so... Well, you know, if I did, if I said it in the lightning round, it would have rolled off the tongue a little later, you know, sounded a bit more. So, 
<laughs> I don't know. I think uh, my first reaction was buying migration tools is so 2018. But uh, everyone they buy, I think, is great because they're just making those products effectively free to help people move at a lower cost, even though lift and shift isn't the best way to go. We all know that. It is good to have discovery tools and... I know, but this is how, how can there possibly still be new discovery tools for people to buy anymore? I mean, I remember like because there's H really no good H solutions for this. It's all they're all terrible solutions that do half the job. And so, if you buy enough of these tools, maybe you'll finally come up with a full solution. <laughs> and I remember struggling with HP's uh, discovery tool like around about the millennium. I mean, that's that's how long people have been struggling with trying to get these tools to do what they want. But I don't know. I'm more of the opinion that you should know what you've got deployed because you deployed it in the first place. And if it's if it's in such a bad state that you need a tool like this to tell you what you've already got running, then you should probably rethink the strategy. Well, I'm going to move on from that topic. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just scared off like half the people in IT. They're like, I don't want to talk to him. He's going to think I'm a fool. I have no idea We might have been talking about leveraging Movir for a different project, actually, for something else that this is now killed. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a conversation for a different day. But it wasn't for this use case. It was for a completely different use case. Anyways, Azure HPC Cache uh, is reducing latency between Azure and on-premise storage. Um, Azure HPC Cache service is now in preview uh, for those organizations using complex, large HPC workloads in both Azure and on-prem. The Azure HPC Cache works by automatically caching active data in Azure that is located both on-premise and in Azure. Uh, effectively hiding latency to on-premise network-attached storage, Azure-based NAS environments using Azure NetApp filers or an Azure blob storage. So if you're using HPC, you will care. Everyone else on the, on the podcast will not care at all. <laughs> I mean, it's always been easier to do the work by the data, but uh, we want the flexible compute. We want to leave the I data think this in is, data. I think this is Microsoft's way of saying we now support NFS without saying NFS. <laughs> it's like storage gateways, and basically. Yeah, basically. It's a yeah. very high-performance storage gateway uh, designed for this workload. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you need this need, uh, you're welcome. You have it now. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people actually run HPC workloads on a daily basis in their jobs, but uh, it's very interesting. Uh, Azure has a new uh, availability region in Germany. Uh, this is a new region that supports both the Azure platform as well as Office 65 and the Dynamics platform. Uh, they have several German companies taking advantage of the new German region, including Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Telekom, SAP, and Arvado Systems. Uh, so this is now available to you if you are a German citizen. Um, your data may actually be in this region, so you're welcome. Excellent. Azure ExpressRoute now is supporting satellite connectivity to expand reach across the globe. Uh, this is a new service allowing uh, remote or rural areas uh, and other isolated locations with poor network connectivity to connect back to the Azure cloud. Uh, so this is something for like shipping, container ships, cruise boats, uh, you know, military operations in foreign countries, uh, energy, farming, etc. Uh, this is all very important for considering that the cloud is now the de facto and primary target for mostly systems, remote and rural locations, and they need the reliable connectivity to that environment. And so Azure is pleased to announce the satellite connectivity to address challenges of operating in remote locations. And this is a partnership between um, SES, IntelliSat, and VISAT, or Viasat uh, to basically have a direct connection directly from their ground station to the Azure cloud uh, through private direct connect links uh, to rapidly speed up your connectivity over the satellite dish, uh, which needs all the help it can get because it's typically a, at least a thousand milliseconds of latency to and from the ground. And so this is a very helpful uh, capability for those customers who need that capability. Yeah, not good for first person shooters, but potentially like tools <laughs> like this could be game changing for 
countries that need this connectivity to improve their economies. Yeah, for sure. I think this is you know interesting too in, in light of Jedi and what this means for Jedi too because this now provides in the ground military operations connectivity directly to the Azure cloud if they were to happen to win the Jedi contract. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. It also makes more sense to me than the um, the AWS ground station announcement does because this is this is actually a very known problem, especially for oil and gas industry, where you know oil pumps in the field need to be able to send data back up and telemetry back up to a cloud, and machine learning and AI is super powerful there in those environments. Um, so being able to leverage a cloud provider to do that even remotely is hugely valuable because typically uh, an oil field is deploying you know massive amounts of compute infrastructure into the into the region they're in to do that processing. So overall, this is a really nice uh, improvement for those type of companies. Uh, it does not talk to satellites, though. So if you have that need, uh, go back to AWS. But if you're in a remote location, Azure has you uh, taken care of. Mm, awesome. It's interesting that the, I mean, um, with with a Starlink cluster, which is going to get launched, and um, and Jeff Bezos is, is going to do the same kind of thing for the low Earth orbit satellite mesh. It's interesting that Microsoft didn't go the same path, and they've just partnered with people to provide the same service. I mean, I guess they can provide the same, their service today. Whereas everybody else is going to be several years away. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of money in the space already that they can take advantage of and provide you a solution today versus waiting for you know a new constellation of of mini satellites to uh, to launch and deploy and, and be available to you. So, just, just think when you're on your Disney cruise now, you can hook up to the Azure cloud anytime you like. Yep, I can anytime I want to. Run my uh, what is it the uh, my blob object storage and you know pay for premium versions of it all from my cruise boat super nice. <laughs> all right, uh, well HashiCorp uh, had their big conference this week and uh, we're not really covering much there at the show, but uh, Azure and HashiCorp did have a joint uh, press release and so we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, Azure of course has partnered with HashiCorp to leverage Hashi products uh, to power their new service mesh interface, and so apparently the new uh, Azure service mesh is complete built on top of the console service, um, which Azure provides through the Azure Managed App Platform. Uh, Terraform, of course, is a pretty popular way to deploy infrastructure as code on Azure. Uh, and Azure has announced that they've made over 180 unique contributions to the Terraform provider for Azure Resource Manager, as well as they are working together to provide integrated support for Ter Terraform and Azure natively in the platform, which is uh, pretty great. They also announced a new uh, cloud-native application bundle, uh, which is a partnership between uh, HashiCorp and Microsoft and a few other companies uh, to build a new hermetic packaging of a binary that is easy to share and deploy around the world. Uh, and this is all about uh, delivering something beyond the binary, which is the typical way you deliver software. And so this would be a package that includes the executable as well as the Terraform code uh, to actually do the deployment and simplify the entire artifact uh, deployment process as a single package. Hmm. I can't, yeah, that's... Trying to figure out if that's going to be game changing or incremental. It sort of reminds me of uh, you know that chef service they built that no one uses. <laughs> well, yeah. See what I mean? Wasn't it Habitat or something? Yeah, it's it, called it Habitat. The yeah, yeah Habitat. The, the, the application container. Yeah, I don't. I don't know who's really using that. I, I mean, I'm sure there are people who really love it, and I'm sorry I just insulted all of you, but I, I really don't know anybody who's running it at scale or, or doing anything really serious with it. So. Um, I wonder if this is a similar project, but I, I think it does have some advantages that they, you know, this is through the Cloud Native Foundation and, and it maybe has more legs because of that, but uh, it'll be really interesting to see what they do over time. And if you're running Habitat out there, send us an email. You can send me hate mail at uh, justin at the cloudpod.net and say how <laughs> I'm wrong and Habitat's amazing. And maybe we'll have you on, have on, have you on the show to tell us why we're wrong. So. Yeah. All right, well, that's it for new news. Uh, Peter, you want to take us to the lightning round? 
Absolutely. Start this one off hot, introducing analyzing text with Amazon Elasticsearch Service and Amazon Comprehend. No matter how you parse that uh, that employee sat or customer sat survey, uh, no one uses Chime, uh, Josh. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Will it help me understand my bill? That's the question. Of course. Amazon SageMaker Ground Truth now supports private worker throughput, worker logs, and metrics. Did they automate uh, performance reviews? That's fantastic. <laughs> Only for the private workers. Only for the private workers. Amazon EC2 Hibernation now available on Amazon Linux 2. Yay! It seems odd that Red Hat beat them to this. <laughs> this wasn't Red Hat like two weeks ago that they support Hibernation before Amazon Linux 2 did? It's a, that's a little bit awkward. I, I'm, I'm just stunned that this wasn't available from the beginning. I mean, yeah, this feels like one that they would have the they would have the little bit of a leg up on there. You'd think they would know it was coming and they could get ahead of that problem, right? You, you yeah. think so? Yeah. I mean, just in, just in general, hibernation has only recently been available in the uh, Amazon Cloud, so it was, it's, it's existed on VMware and Zen and uh, KVM for for years and years and years. So it's just bizarre that now that they support hibernation. I mean, I, it's. I mean, CloudFormation doesn't know new services are coming either. So, you know, it's, maybe Amazon Linux too didn't know it was coming. It was like, wait, what? What did you do? We can we can do that too. Wait, we need to enable in the kernel. What What is really cool about Hibernation though is you can uh, snapshot an, uh, an a, a snapshot of a machine in its hibernated state, and then when you, and you turn it into an auto scaling instance, and when they power on, they power up with the processes all ready to go, all already in RAM, and so it it changes the uh, the auto scaling boot up time from you know minutes to seconds. Sounds like you've been doing your research for a project. I, I, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Next. WorkDocs Drive enables a custom drive letter. So this very basic Windows 3.1 feature, or actually even maybe Windows 1 feature, you now support in WorkDocs. That's fantastic. Oh, come actually, on. Way, way before it, Windows, it, we were doing maybe this in Maybe MS-DOS. Don't yeah, forget MS, Netware. Yeah, Netware, MS-DOS. Like, I'm so glad that WorkDocs has arrived at 1982. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares what drive letter it is, really? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Why X? Why is it always X? Or the N drive, the network drive? Yeah, the N drive is a common one. And then, of course, you know, the, the long history of companies that use the first letter of their name as their drive letter for shared things. So, yeah, all good. I'm waiting for them to support floppy disks again. Yes. Hey, A, A is still a protected drive. Like, A is still a protected drive letter. I bet WorkDocs freaks out if you try to sign it. Let's do it. Well, I didn't install WorkDocs first, so that's, that's, a, that's a leap. That's not going to happen. AWS Systems Manager Automation now supports additional queuing. Hurry up and wait. Yep. Very military of them. AISPL now accepts net banking payments. I mean, I'm really happy that the puppies and the kitties get all that money from you know net banking payments, I guess. Oh. It's, it's so sad. I went to went to the pet store a couple of days ago, and uh, you know, you, before you get to swipe your card anymore, they're like, would you like to save the life of a puppy today? I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, if they added that, if they added that song, though, it would you be in? It's it's the lack of the emotional connection to the Melissa Etheridge song. Uh, but yeah, no, this is uh, AISPL for those who know is just means your Amazon bill. You can now pay it through net banking payments. You're welcome. <laughs> Simplify your Spark application dependency management with Docker and Hadoop three with EMR six point zero point zero beta. So you can support. EMR 6.0, but you can't support Kubernetes' current version. 
that seems like a miss. Amazon EKS now supports the EBS CSI driver. And the fun thing about this is that it gives you a very heavy-duty uh, interrogation of all of your drives and your <laughs> suspects. And so you get you get really right to the bottom of all those issues, and interrogation techniques work really effectively here. E for effort on that one. Oh, this is actually kind of cool, though. I, it, when I actually read through this, what it was. Uh, so apparently the, the Entry EBS plugin, uh, which is still supported in Kubernetes 1.14, uh, is be, or sorry, and 1.13 is being replaced in 1.14 by the CSI driver, which apparently is a much more sufficient EBS driver, and it's decoupled from the upstream Kubernetes, so you can now have to update your firmware for your drives uh, at the same time as you upgrade your Kubernetes clusters to kind of avoid some of that risk. So that's a nice, nice feature, actually. Moving on, Amazon AppStream 2.0 enables AWS Identity and Access Management role support for image builders and fleets. So what did they do before? <laughs> like, if it wasn't IAM, what magic did they use? Name and password. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to set that in AppStream, so great. HD <laughs> access file, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Works for me. Amazon QuickSight announces favorites, anomaly alerts, and more. Again, they're uh, catching up with Crystal Reports. <laughs> it's too bad they don't support CSI. That would make things so much easier. Right, then they can interrogate the report. That's yeah, what they to do. You can now manage EFS limits with AWS service quotas. Just in time to manage all those limits you just hit with the uh, new infrequent access storage. <laughs> <laughs> that almost got a point. That disgust almost got a point. Just, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just, if you're going to launch a service that lets you manage service quotas. This this whole piecemeal of like adding support for one thing at a time over months just it's just tedious. Yeah, but it gives us something to talk about and make fun of mercilessly. No, at least it's not tags anymore. Yeah, <laughs> no, we, 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 it was only because we we revoked the rights for tags and for uh, for new region uh, features because we there were so many of them we could and in general and the general availability party we killed too because it was just annoying. <laughs> Amazon Pinpoint adds support for iOS 13 and Watch OS 6 push notifications. Just in time for the new iPhones. Yep, it's got yep. a bigger number. Must be good. iPhone 11. Must be good. Bigger number. AWS App Mesh now supports retry policies. I would hope that your network retries. It seems like a basic feature of a network. I don't think it's network retries, is it? Isn't it like, or is it? I, I had imagined it was authorization retries. Maybe it is network. Or adding retries to traffic between services. With this feature, you can add resilience to your application with essentially no change to application code. This is useful in applications where failed requests can be retried without any negative consequences shielding users from transient issues. It is all about network. That sounds like network to me. It's a proxy. It's HTTP proxy, and, and it just keeps it tries it a few times before it finally returns the... You screwed it up. I do. Message. I do enjoy this. Uh, this move towards calling it app mesh instead of app mesh. Who's <laughs> who started that? It's all over the uh, the Amazon Twitters. I mean, and uh, that's people awesome. Saying, they write out. They say app mesh. Uh, <laughs> I love it. It's fantastic. That is good. AWS transfer for SFTP now supports logical directories for Amazon S3. Telling me that I never try this product because I just would have assumed that was the case. <laughs> so there was no directory structure before, and there was just a flat org and SFTP transfer. Uh, I, I, yeah, okay, cool. 
Yeah, I guess you map different customers to different parts of the same bucket, which which is nice because otherwise you would have to have uh, a deployment of the SFTP service per customer, and it's already super expensive. So I guess it's a that's a good feature if you really need to use SFTP. Some people do. People do. Sometimes, like we all know, out of our control when customers and partners are stuck on it and won't. I mean, it's, it's it's basically ch root for their SFTP service. Right. And rounding it out, AWS Storage Gateway supports IBM Spectrum Protect on Linux and five terabyte tapes. The new James Bond movie sounds fantastic. Virtual. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I don't get virtual. I mean, it's a virtual tape. Why is there a limit on the size of a virtual tape? I just. <laughs> <laughs> That's a it's good a point. file. <laughs> Uh, Anytime you get into VTL and you start talking to a storage engineer about VTL, you you realize very quickly that you you really just want to back out of the room very slowly and just go, like, why do we do this? Why do we take a data set and back it up into a proprietary format we have to access with a backup software? It makes zero sense. Unless you make the backup software, then it makes sense. (laughs) Is, Is it literally like emulating a tape drive? It presents itself as a tape drive to to a device. Why? Yeah, so Spectrum Protect is the Tivoli storage manager, because they realized that Tivoli was a terrible name. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, Tape Gateway also increased the maximum support of virtual tape size from 2.5 terabytes to 5 terabytes to help you store more data on a single tape and ease tape management, which is all virtual tape management, which is even better. Uh, and yeah, that's where you go. Oh, I'm just waiting for next week's announcement, which is going to be you know VHS support for uh, Amazon Elemental Media Services. There you go. <laughs> just for that authentic 1990s or 1980s feel. Betamax. I want Betamax. <laughs> so each tape is stored as its own object on S3. There you go. So, you know, I guess is there a limitation on the size of an object in S3 that would make this reasonable? All right, Justin, give yourself a point. Woot. I mean, I think you should get two or three points probably. <laughs> Just one. Just I think I think the trick was that I I watched a lot of David Letterman as a kid. And a lot of top ten lists, and I think I just I just have it naturally comes to me because of that. So there you go. Nice. <laughs> I don't know. Was David, was David Letterman a thing in Britain, Jonathan? Was that? Uh, he's not. No. And uh, you know, when I first moved here, like how many years ago? Way too many years ago. Uh, getting into the kind of like the, the American evening t- talk show kind of humor just took took a long time. I do like David Letterman. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, now the later stuff was was rough, but the early stuff was pretty good. But. Yeah, actually, like his interviews that he did on the. On oh, the Netflix. Netflixes are great. Yeah, those are fantastic. He's he's a good interviewer. And he's always a good interviewer on the show. Um, some of the comedy didn't hit, but the interviews are always good, and the top ten list is always my favorite part of it. So that and yeah. that and stupid pet tricks. So yeah, <laughs> and, uh, don't forget All stupid right. people tricks. That's right. They have those too. Yep. All right, guys. Well, that's another fantastic week here at the Cloud Pod. Uh, I will be at Oracle World uh, next week, uh, at least for the keynote on the first day with uh, Mr. Allison to hear him bash Jeff in person. Uh, but this episode will be out after that. But uh, I, I would have been there, and you'll if you're on Twitter and you're following me, you will uh, see that I'm there. And if you're there, I will have stickers and all the things as appropriate. I, I just couldn't bring myself to go there. Well, I wasn't going to go. And then, you know, Corey... Signed up and then he got denied and I was like, well, I'll, I'll just go try to to get into. And then I think I, 
I think because Corey made a big tweet, a big stink on Twitter about not getting access, and I, I liked it, and I retweeted, said I didn't get in either. I think I got in because of that. So nice. I, I'm, I'm riding Corey's coattails into the, into open world, which would be fantastic, really, for the fact that I'll get to sit next to Corey in the, in the media section and watch him do his magic, which is pretty fantastic. If you want to see someone live tweet a uh, keynote, uh, Corey is a, an artist. At the highest level. So. I will tune in. <laughs> I will tune in. Uh, there's apparently a couple of them, though. So, like, Monday is the big one. And then Tuesday morning is Mark Hurd, the CEO's keynote. And then Wednesday, Larry has a second keynote. Um, so, I, I don't – I'm not going to go to all three. <laughs> I'm only going to go to one uh, just to see what Larry has to say in person because uh, I'll catch other two in live stream, I think. Yeah, I mean, what what could they possibly announce, which is going to be revolutionary or game changing or cloud three uh, It's unbreakable cloud, Jonathan. Unbreakable cloud three <laughs> um, I look forward to your your review. Uh, I will let, I will let you know. I uh, I I decided we shouldn't do predictions on Oracle Cloud because we would have no idea no. Uh, what to predict. <laughs> Other than you know, like very basic features, like they're going to announce a blob object storage <laughs> of some sort because <laughs> they don't think they have that yet, but. Uh, yeah, good times. All right, guys. Well, we'll talk to you all next week. Yep, see you next week. All right, good night. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Thank you.